Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sofonispe Anguissola. My guest is Michael W. Cole, the author of Sofonispe's Lesson, a Renaissance Artist and Her Work, which was recently published by Princeton University Press. Cole considers Sofonispe's art, how her background, teaching, and learning were important to her career and to her art, and how her relationships with her father, Amilcare, her teacher, Bernardino Campi, her relationships with other artists, such as Michelangelo, and her presence at a series of royal courts resulted in her work, and in work attributed to her. Cole's book also includes a complete illustrated catalog of the more than 200 paintings and drawings that have been associated with Sofonisba, 256 color illustrations in all. Cole is a professor of art history and archaeology at Columbia University. Amazon offers the book for $40. It's also available through IndieBound. We'll have links to both on manpodcast.com. You can also go to manpodcast.com to see images of artworks discussed on this week's show. On the second segment, John Edwin Mason joins me to discuss his 2018 examination of National Geographic's presentation of race across nearly 130 years of its flagship magazine. But first, Michael Cole, after the break. Explore art with Getty. Visit our online exhibition, Bauhaus, Building the New Artist, winner of this year's Muse Award for Best Online Experience. Watch videos about art making, conservation, and art history. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. Learn to make and explore art from home. And tune into Recording Artists, winner of the 2020 Webby Award for Best Arts and Culture Podcast. Learn more at getty.edu art. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, featuring the work of more than 60 black artists who defined black identity, creativity, activism, and social responsibility over two decades. Soul of a Nation explores what it meant to be a black artist in America during two revolutionary decades, from the 1960s in the civil rights movement to the early 1980s in the emergence of identity politics. See works by pivotal artists like Betty Saar, Romare Bearden, Elizabeth Catlett, Roy de Carava, David Hammonds, Lorraine O'Grady, and Faith Ringgold. Accompanying the exhibition is a dynamic lineup of virtual programming. Artist talks, discussions, films, and more. Now on view through August 30th. Visit mfah.org slash soul. And we're back. Michael Cole, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler, for inviting me. I think that Americans probably know Sophonisba best as a self-portraitist, and certainly I did. You write that she produced more self-portraits than anyone in the 130 years between Durer and Rembrandt, which is, an, which is just an extraordinary stat. Why did she paint so many, and why do they work for us? Why, why, why have they charmed audiences? 
Well, she was an, an artist who, although she was trained, it appears, in the in the home of the local Cremonese painter Bernardino Campi, um, she was an artist who, throughout the 1550s, when most of those portraits were made, worked from her own home. She depicted the people who were there, the members of, of, of her family, but then also herself. So one reason is that it was the subject matter at hand. Um, but from very early on, she was also famous and her father began circulating portraits of her. It became known that these portraits were available, and it seems that already by the, the late 1550s, there was a real demand for them. Was there a similar demand for self-portraits of male artists? Was there something particular to her gender that interested people? It's just such an extraordinary thing. <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to say where these portraits, what was done with these portraits when people received them. The one thing that we know is that men began to put together galleries of portraits of, of famous people, of famous men, and then of famous men, famous men and women. And for these galleries, it didn't matter so much if the portrait for the gallery was made by the person or if it simply depicted that person. So the most important thing was to have a representation of the face more than a depiction that was by that person. There, there is an early comment about Sophonisba, though, that one collector wanted the painting both to see the marvel of the painter who was depicted and the marvel of it having been made by her. She was not born to fame. She was born to minor nobility. So how did she become famous? How did she become known? I'm not sure how she became known. She's already mentioned in a text of 1550 as a, as a well-known painter from her hometown of Cremona. From that date, there are, no, there are no known works. So even before she's making her first pictures, people seem to know that she was an active artist. In the, in the 1550s, her father then begins circulating, especially self-portraits, by her. And these increase, increase her fame and spread her renown further. Among the people to whom he sends works, apparently, is Michelangelo, and I, and we'll come to that in a moment. But before we do, and before we start kind of really digging into individual artworks, which the book does an awesome job of, we should probably discuss the question of her oeuvre and, and how much it is known or agreed upon or not agreed upon. <laughs> what is kind of the status of the Sophonisba oeuvre? I should say maybe this is this is what drew me into the project in the first place. I've been teaching her work in my introductory classes for years, and I, I always look forward to that part of the course, but I, I also did so with with a bit of fear. When you pull the Sophonisba books from the shelf in the library, you find that the the illustration programs can be vastly different from, from one another. I begin to worry, what if the, the things I was putting on the screen with her name in the caption were not were not really by her. So when I started working on the, this book, I, I decided to go back to basics and, and just ask what we know and how we know it. And the, the second half of the book is a catalog that tries to represent exactly that. I inevitably have my own opinions on things, but I've tried to indicate the, the sort of relative le level of certainty around the, the many, many works that have been associated with her in the last four and a half centuries. One of the most fascinating self-portrait stories in the book is maybe not a self-portrait story. At about the time Sophonisba leaves home to go to the Spanish court, she makes a painting, possibly makes a painting of herself and her teacher, the aforementioned Bernardino Campi. 
this painting is now in Siena, and it has an extraordinary and layered history. I apologize for the pun. So before we get to the question of, of who painted it, what does the painting show, and why has it changed so much over the decades? So the painting shows a woman facing the viewer who is represented as a painting on an easel. And in front of that easel is a man who is painting the picture. It was documented for the first time in, in Mantua in the 1620s, where the compiler of an inventory thought it was a depiction, a portrait of, of Sofonisba and the minor Mantuan painter Fermo Ghisoni. It then turns up in Siena in the 19th century, where it's initially thought to be a Venetian painting. And then Giovanni Morelli, the inventor of modern connoisseurship, sees it in the 1880s and just believes it, takes it to be a portrait of, of Sofonisba, understands it to be a self-portrait, and infers that the man in the picture must be her teacher, Bernardino Campi. Because he appears to be painting her, right? Yeah, there's an image in the book of how the painting looked before a recent conservation. And Sofonispa is wearing a black dress. Campy is wearing a, a, a black coat. And really their faces and hands kind of pop out of the gloom. You, you, you see that the two figures we understand to be painters and their hands, which, of course, they use in painting. And the painting doesn't look like that anymore. <laughs> So what did we learn when the conservators went to work? When Morelli attributed the painting to Sofonisba in the, in the 1880s, he did so on the basis of its resemblance to the other paintings he believed to be self-portraits of Sofonisba, which all show her dressed in sort of austere black garments. And in the 1980s and 90s, scholars came to count it as the most revealing of Sofonisba's self-presentations, in part because she presents herself as this austere woman in, in, in black who rejected flamboyant clothes and jewels, and in part because of the, of, of the kind of ironic inversion that the painting seemed to represent, that the, the, the picture's ostensible presentation of Sofonisba as a picture was undermined by the fact that Sofonisba seemed more present than the painter who was painting her. She was the central figure of the composition. She's the higher figure on the on on the picture plane. Then in the in the in the mid nineties, the conservators in Siena began to investigate the, the picture and they discovered that underneath the black dress there was a there was a different, slightly different composition, and once they removed the the surface, they discovered not only was the was the arm in the original in the painting originally positioned differently, but that the the the, the black costume had been painted over a sort of splendid crimson and gold dress that contradicted everything we we thought we knew about about Sofonisba's appearance. In, in the context of the book as a physical object, it's kind of startling. One turns the page and boom, there's, a, there's this kind of vermilion and, and, and golden, golden dress. One of the things conservators found when, when they went to work was, this is going to sound weirder than it looks in the painting, but that Sofonisba has kind of like three arms, <laughs> 
or three hands. What did we learn about the position of kind of her two left hands and what that might what might that suggest? Well, it seems that that originally when the work was first painted, the depicted woman had her arm had her left arm at a at a sharper angle. The painter then rethought things and placed the arm in the position that we see it today. And when the when the black clothes were painted over painted over the the, the original red dress, that second arm position was the one that was preserved. When the conservators removed these these, these layers, they initially left these these two different original compositions both in view, and then eventually they painted out the the, the version with the with the sharper arm. The short upper arm is kind of interesting because it almost suggests that the short upper arm of the painted figure, Sophonispa, is guiding the hand of the figure painting her, possibly um, ostensibly campy. So who do you think made the painting? What, what, are, what are some of the things you thought through in thinking about whether or not this is a Sophonispa painting or a campy painting or who knows, somebody else altogether? Maybe I can start with with some of the problems. The painting has to date from the very late 1550s at the at the earliest. This is Evan, I think, from the from from the ages of the depicted characters, but also from from the costume as late as as 1558. Sophonisba depicted herself in signed and dated portraits in these completely black costumes, and that that only changes after 1559 when when she moves to Spain. The most comparable works would be a painting in the in the Brera with a date that most scholars read as 1561 and a, and a painting in, in Chantilly that is seems to be from about 1564. So if the if the if the painting is is that late, it comes from a moment that's a, a full decade after she had left Compi shop after Compi for that matter had, had left Cremona. And it's it's hard to see why she would show herself with her with her old teacher at that point. Compi, on the other hand, had had every reason to attach himself to to Sophonisba's celebrity. And in fact there's a there's a there's a letter that survives from 1561 where he writes to her in Spain asking her to send him a portrait and she politely de- declines. So the circumstances are one are one problem. To my eye, the the, the face, the the shape, the, the 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 palette doesn't look like that in Sophonisba's other self portraits. Unlike most of Sophonisba's secure self portraits, not all, but most of them from from the 1550s, it's unsigned. Um, that's not proof of anything, but it would seem very odd for her not to put her name on such an ambitious clever picture when she signed so many others. So I guess I'm I'm left pretty convinced that it's not by Sophonispa, that it belongs among the, the numerous works made in Italy during the second half of the 16th century by other men celebrating her fame. I'm less sure it's by Compi, but Compi certainly had good reasons to make such a picture. We'll have images on manpodcast.com of the picture and its various post-completion states, if you will. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Sophonispa as a court painter. Her first full-length portrait of a ruler 
is of Massimiliano Stampa II, who ruled Cremona from the time he was 12 years old. Sofonisba, who, when she was about 25, made what uh, is now the first known full-length portrait of him. It's now at the Walters in Baltimore. How did she come to make a painter for a 12-year-old ruler? And is this the painting and the subject that kind of launched her career outside Cremona? So by 1557, when the painting was made, and there's a date on the back of the painting, so in this case, we know exactly when it was created. We don't, it's not certain that it's by Sophonisba. but it's, it's another unsigned work. And in fact, some scholars don't think she's the, she's the author of it. But by 1557, she's pretty well known outside of, outside of Cremona. And her, her family had historical towns to Soncino, over which um, Stampa had become the, the new ruler. And there are a number of similar portraits of Massimiliano II. So it seems like this composition in this picture kind of had a certain currency at the time. Yes, there are. There are. I think there are three um, known versions of the of, of of the painting. One question has been which is the original, which are the copies, and the other another question has been who made each. But it was it was pretty common in the time that if if a painting was made for a ruler at court that pleased that person, other copies would be made for distribution. So Sophonisba, at, at the end of the 1550s, is summoned to Philip's court, to, to the royal court, and she will work there uh, for 14 years. Do we know how or why she was summoned to the royal court? Could it have been this very portrait of Massimiliano II that, that prompted that? So Cremona was in Sofonisba's time a, a Spanish dominion. It's uh, it's part of the territories that were ruled by the by King Philip II, who invited her to to Spain. He had been in Cremona he had, in the in the late 1540s, and he may already have known about her at that time. When he marries Isabel de Valois and and is planning to to bring her to the court, he decides to invite. Sophonisba to come officially be a, a dama, a lady in waiting for Isabel. But the I think the expectation is that as part of the way that that Sophonisba would serve and and entertain her would be to would be to teach her painting. This is a fascinating story. When Philip marries Isabel, Isabel is fourteen. There is a passage in the book that details whether which of a number of paintings of Isabel may have been made by, by Sophonisba. And maybe kind of the best way into that story is a painting apparently of Isabel from the early to mid-1560s that's at the Prado that may have been painted by, by Sophonisba. What, what is that painting and how do you kind of use it as a way in not only to other paintings of Isabel, but to Isabel's own work as a painter? Assessing this part of, of, of Sophonisba's career is that once once she moved to Spain, she stops signing paintings, and the paintings that she does um, look extremely similar to the other paintings that are being done by other artists at the Spanish court. There are various um, various documents that make clear that she made a lot of portraits and even indicate um, which members of the court she she portrayed but it's it's 
it hasn't been possible for anyone to connect any of these documented works with any certainty to any surviving to any surviving painting. I think the painting you're referring to is the one that shows Isabel standing at a column holding a miniature portrait of Philip II, her, her husband, in her in her right hand. Yeah, wearing an extraordinary dress with kind of open-ish sleeves, standing just to the right of a marbled column. Yes, and the the the, the attribution of that of that painting has changed considerably over the years. It was for a time thought to be an early 17th century copy made after a, a lost painting by Alonso Sanchez Cuello, the official portraitist of the court portraitist for, for Philip II. And then um, in the 1980s, a number of scholars began to think that it was perhaps by, by Sofonisba. This question has, has, I don't think it's ever been conclusively resolved. The, the Prado has changed its own label for the work over the years. I have to say that when I went to see the painting in in the in the Sofonisba exhibition at the Prado in January, I came away pretty convinced that it was not by her. Are there paintings that survive that are Isabel's that suggest Sofonisba's influence or guidance? I don't think there's anything that survives that can be associated with Isabel. No paintings, no drawings. There is a painting at the Kunsthistorisches in Vienna that is of Isabel. Is that a painting you think is by Sofonisba? And does it point in any particular directions? So this is a fascinating work. It's, it certainly depicts Isabel de Valois, and it has what appears to be a signature on the work that reads Sofonisba Lomalina et Anguissola Pinxit, P for pink, Pinxit. Sofonisba adopted the name Lomelino, when she married her second husband, Orazio Lomelino, in 1580. So the inscription, at least, has to has to postdate 1580. But Isabel had died in 1568. So there's there's a contradiction between the the chronology of the painting and that of the of the inscription. It could be that that Sofonisba made the work in Isabel's presence in Spain, kept it with her, and at some point later, for some reason, added the inscription, or that someone else added the inscription. It could be that she had with her later in life a portrait of Isabel, and made, and this is a, a copy of that portrait, and the, she added the, the inscription when she, when she made the copy. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, series of questions, uh, and is, is a r- really good example of how we know what we don't know. <laughs> One of the first Sofonisba portraits I ever, self-portraits I ever saw, is a small oval picture at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And you use it in the book as a way of discussing gender roles and the relationship between sewing, embroidery, and, and brocade in Sofonisba's era. Of course, anybody who who loves art knows that Sofonisba's era is fashion and textile mad. So much of the fun of of great Florentine mannerist painting, for example, is what everyone is wearing. (laughs) What is Sofonisba holding in that Boston self-portrait? Well, let's start there. What is is she holding? And indeed, where is her hand? uh, She's holding a, a, a round disc. It has a border around which runs 
an inscription that, that indicates the painting is by Sofonisba and that it was depicted from, from a mirror in her own hand. And in the center of it, there are interlocked letters that form a cipher of the name of her father, Amilcare. But I think one of the questions is, what is, what is the object itself? And um, there are, as I said, a, a couple of possibilities. One is that it's a kind of medallion. There's a famous painting by, by Botticelli of, of a man holding a portrait of Cosimo di Medici in front of his heart. It's a gesture of, of alliance or loyalty. It could be with a, a ciphered name, some kind of emblem or heraldic, heraldic shield. I think the most likely explanation, though, is that it's it's intended to be a kind of a kind of mirror. The inscription, after all, states that it was made from a mirror. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other things that's really striking about the picture is in this in this disc she's holding, her hand appears to cover two letters, and the the word which wraps around the edge of the disc that her hand appear, appears to cover is Virgo. And by her covering those two letters, it appears to read as Vir. What game is she playing? What is she pointing to with how she places her hand in relation to that text? Well, the word Virgo means unmarried. It indicates that she, she lives in her father's house. The word Vir means man. So depending on how much intentionality we we ascribe to that gesture. She could be inviting questions about whether she is performing the gender roles that are that were traditionally associated with women. So speaking of that Boston self-portrait, one of the reasons it was such fun to read about in the book is because I noticed last time I was at the MFA that it wasn't up. Of course, I was last at the MFA before the pandemic. And I noticed on the MFA's website that it's it's not on view. At the same time, it's a really famous work of hers, at least in the United States. Any idea why we don't get to see it? Does that have something to do with the condition or other mysteries around around the work? Yeah, I, I would say that this is the most important Sophonisba painting in the United States, and virtually no one sees it because, in part, because of its of its, of its medium. For decades, it was thought that the pigment was a, a form of watercolor, which is sensitive to light, and so it's been treated the way that the museum would treat any any drawing that you can make an appointment and go back to the the department and they'll pull it out and you can examine it, but it's not put on permanent display. So we don't know what medium it is? It's difficult to determine with certainty what the medium is because it's in it's in a setting with glass over the top that doesn't allow this, the, the kind of physical examination of the material that it would be if it were simply simply unframed. Wow, that's that's wild. And it's on parchment. So now nowadays and really for you know a century or two, it's not unusual for artists to have made oil on paper works. Was that an unusual thing in the 1550s, oil on paper? I would have thought it was an unusual thing, but one of the things I learned at the Prado exhibition is that the, the painting, the self-portrait by Sofonisba in, in Palazzo Colonna in Rome is also oil on, oil on paper. The physical condition of the Boston self-portrait is also fascinating that metal setting that you see it in with the with the loop at the top gives the impression that it's a that it's a kind of 
It's a kind of pendant that maybe would have been worn from a chain. But I don't think there's any evidence from before the 20th century that it originally had this form. There's an 1801 engraving of the work that shows it as a round object. And there's a mid-19th century copy of it in the Victorian Albert Museum, which also show a round object with no loop at the top. So I wonder whether it was recently, which is to say in the last century and a half, cut down into the oval shape that we now see. And of course, if it was a, if it was originally a round object, then the painting itself would resemble the round object that Sophonisba holds in it. And the witticism in the picture would involve the idea of a mirror. Yeah, a, a kind of a rhyming mirror. <laughs> if you imagine Sophonisba depicting herself in a round object that resembles a small mirror holding up and with an inscription that, that uh, holding up this 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 object with an inscription that says the picture was depicted from from a mirror where that object that she's holding is itself mirror-like. There could be a play on the idea that Sophonisba resembled her father or if maybe if he's the intended audience for the work that when he looks at her, he sees he sees himself reflected. It makes her hand covering the go of Vir or Virgo all the more rhyming back upon itself. What is the relationship during Sophonisba's lifetime between sewing and embroidery and brocade? What genders would have done what? And does she play with that idea and those gender roles in her work? The term that's most frequently used to to describe her way of painting is diligenza, diligence, which is used to describe a a particular um, fine manner of, of rendering. It's precisely the kind of language that would be associated with, with sewing. And when we see her depicting the gold threads on, on a dress or the embroidered collar that one of, one of her sisters wears, I think the picture invites a kind of comparison between painting and embroidery or sewing. You think that in her paintings, she's consciously making reference to the gendered ideas of who makes and doesn't make certain textiles or, or, or creates certain textiles. Renaissance artists and, and viewers thought a lot about the relationship between different crafts. Sometimes they, they, they thought in terms of, of likenesses. They talked about sister arts, the idea of liberal and, and, and manual arts. Um, sometimes they thought in terms of hierarchies and exclusions. To have sister arts, you also have to have crafts that are rejected from, from that family. And so when you, when you have two practices that are, that are placed in relationship to one another or where viewers are invited to, to think about the relationship between, say, sewing and, and painting, there is a Renaissance practice of referencing, maybe not opposing, but maybe dichotomous practices within a painting. Yes, and when the practices like sewing, when a painting invites a comparison between practices like sewing and painting itself, I think there's a question of whether that comparison is meant to liken the two or distinguish them. Sophonisba, so far as we know, was overwhelmingly, primarily a portraitist. 
There is a, a fascinating drawing in the book by her, or at least attributed to her, that's in Naples, of a boy bitten by a, a crawfish. What does that drawing suggest? Is she engaging a certain tradition? She was not painting boys bitten by, by crawfish. <laughs> There's a, a letter that Tommaso Cavalieri writes to the Duke of Florence, where he reports on, on an exchange that, that, that happened between Sofonisba and Michelangelo. And according to this letter, Michelangelo had seen a drawing by Sofonisba of, of a laughing girl. And Michelangelo wrote to Sofonisba that he would like to see her depict a crying boy because this was a more difficult thing to depict. And according to Cavalieri, when, when, um, when Sofonisba received this, this challenge, she, she sent him the, 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 the drawing, which everyone now thinks is the one that's now in Naples, um, which according to Cavalieri was, was a portrait of her brother as Drubale being bitten by a crayfish and, and, and crying. According to Cavalieri, Sofonisba had, had made Estrubile cry in order to show Michelangelo that she could, she, could de- she could depict a crying boy. She's looking on tenderly. He is absolutely bawling. There's a, a range of emotions, a range of kind of gender roles that are playing out. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's fascinating about the, about the, the, the drawing is if, if the boy is a portrait of Sofonisba's little brother, Estrubile, is the girl in the, in the drawing a self-portrait? And what is the, the, the relationship then between this scene of her making her brother cry in order to make, make a drawing and the, and the picture itself? When a century later, the writer Baldonucci saw what seems to have been the same work, he wrote that, that Sofonisba had shown a basket of crayfish, that a boy had wanted to play with one, and the, the crayfish had consequently bitten him, which made him cry. So there's, he doesn't characterize the, 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 the girl in the drawing more, so from herself as being sort of culpable for this in the same way. The last painting I'd like to talk about is The Chess Game, a painting from the mid-1550s. I, I think it's probably one of her most famous pictures, and it has a little bit of everything. It has elaborate, ornate textiles. It has a landscape scene behind the two or three people playing chess. It features everybody in the painting looking at a different place. So there's kind of an implied narrative, both within the painting and without, between the, the, the viewer and the painting. And you, you describe it in the book as a genre-busting painting. How is it genre-busting? And, and well, let's start there. How is it genre-busting? Well, today when all likenesses depend on on photography i think it's tempting to see that the chess game as a as a representation of an event even that this title that it's come to be known by the chess game suggests that there there was a game with with a winner and a loser and by looking at the painting we can figure out what happened but there are there are a lot of oddities to the painting one is the setting there's um, it gives the impression of taking place in kind of outdoor garden with a with a view over a distant landscape. If you visit the Anguissola house in, in Cremona, you realize that nothing like this could have been could have been seen from there. Then there's the, the costumes. It seems it seems like very fancy dress for 
for sisters from a fairly impoverished family to where to play a game in the afternoon. And then there's the, 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 the strange composition with, the, with trees in the background that seem too close to the figures. And not, not just too close to the figures, but something about the proximity of the trees to the picture plane pushes the distant landscape up against the picture plane too. Is there a way we might or should read the relationship between the sitters, the chessboard itself, and, and the mountainscape beyond? Well, I think one starting point would be the inscription on the edge of the, the chessboard. Sophonisba Anguissola, the maiden daughter of Emilcare, painted this from the true likenesses of three of her sisters and her maidservant. The indication that this was painted from true likenesses suggests that it was not, it's, it's not a representation of an actual event at all, but it's a, a kind of pastiche based on other existing portraits that either Sophonisba or her sisters had made. The reference to her father suggests that he's a kind of implied presence in the in the picture. And when Vasari saw the work in fifteen in the fifteen sixties, he indicated that it was that it was hanging in the family house. So I, I, I see it not as a as a narrative scene so much as an aspirational group portrait that shows what Sophonisba's father hoped his family would would be, that they are all members of a of a something like a princely court, and paintings of that sort would have a, have just this kind of landscape in the background. And indeed, indeed she got there. Michael Cole, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you again for having me. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can wex from home with exclusive live streams, virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to wexarts.org for events such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of LaToya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the WEX. It's all at wexarts.org. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, Abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton MacDonald Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American abstract artists such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhardt, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Carone, known for their participation in abstract expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of non-figural or abstract art. For more information on Small Abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org.
Welcome back. Next up, John Edwin Mason, who joins me to discuss his recent examination of National Geographic's presentation of race across nearly 130 years in its flagship magazine, and the potential applicability of such an institutional audit to the art museum sector. Mason is a professor of African history and the history of photography at the University of Virginia. John Edwin Mason, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. It's great to be here. In 2018, National Geographic asked you to examine how National Geographic magazine had over the course of its 130 year history, presented or culturally constructed race. Nat Geo was first published in 1888. As best I can tell, there are something like 1,500 issues of the thing. <laughs> so how, how did you approach your brief, and did you modify what the magazine asked you to do? I approached my brief very naively. Neither the magazine nor I had ever done anything like this before. Let me be perfectly frank and tell you that the biggest mistake that I made was not to ask to be paid. It was an extraordinary experience. The magazine gave me unrestricted access to their library and to their archive, both their paper archive and their photographic archive. And I'm an historian, and that is unrestricted access to an archive is something that we live for. I also thought it was the right thing to do. This is a magazine that has a really important presence in American culture. It has very much for well over, what, 132 years or something like that, shaped the way that Americans have seen the world. And seen here works in two ways. It's both literal because so much of National Geographic's content have been pictures of the world. But to see is also to understand. When somebody says something to you and you say, I see, you mean I get it. I understand what you're saying. So to, under, <laughs> to understand how National Geographic shaped the vision of the world for a large swath of America, mostly middle class, mostly pretty well-educated, mostly white, and pretty influential group of people. I thought that exploring this in a way that makes it accessible to a broader public was going to be a good public service. Now, let me stop and say that anthropologists and media studies scholars and a variety of others have looked at National Geographic, have written about National Geographic, and I was drawing on a great depth of scholarship when I was doing my work and when I was going into the archive. But my remit was not to produce an academic paper. It wasn't even to write a popular article. It was to have a series of conversations with the editor-in-chief of National Geographic magazine, Susan Goldberg. And it was out of our conversations that her letter from the editor that appeared in the issue on race, it was out of our conversations that her letter uh, was formed. So once you said yes and decided you would undertake this examination or this audit, did you have a strategy for how you would approach such a vast amount of both history and data? Let me take a step back and say that before I said yes, I wanted to talk to, to Susan and I wanted to get a sense of how deeply committed she and the magazine were to 
uncovering what we frankly both knew would be some ugliness in its history, a significant amount of ugliness in its history, and particularly a good deal of racism in its history in the way that it visually represented and wrote about people from the non-Western world and even marginalized people within the Western world. So I knew that was coming, and she knew that was coming, and so we talked. And I got a sense that she was ready for this, and the magazine was ready for this. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. National Geographic magazine is no longer owned solely by the National Geographic Society. National Geographic Society has been around since the magazine was founded in the late 1880s. National Geographic Society was founded by elite white Protestant men and has generally continued to share a worldview of a white male conservative elite. And there's a good deal of institutional commitment to the magazine and a kind of institutional protectiveness of the magazine that you would find within the society. Its commercial partner, the Disney Corporation, doesn't have those institutional ties to the magazine. It doesn't have that emotional sort of investment in protecting the magazine and its reputation. On the other hand, Disney Corporation has to respond to consumers. And it understands that its consumers are tremendously diverse by race and ethnicity. And they would bring perhaps a certain skepticism to National Geographic magazine if it was going to do an issue on race without examining its own past, without doing a mea culpa, without saying that, you know, that we as a magazine helped shape demeaning racial stereotypes of black and brown people. And that we have, in a lot of ways, perpetuated ways of seeing that reinforce racism, both individual racism and structural racism. I mean, the magazine had to say that. And I think Susan Goldberg understood that it had to say that, too. Now, she herself also does not bring a lifelong connection to National Geographic magazine. She was an outsider. And she was an outsider in three or four kinds of ways. I mean, she did not rise to the ranks of the magazine. She was hired from the outside. She is a woman, and she is the first female editor-in-chief of the magazine. And she's Jewish. She is the first Jewish editor-in-chief of the magazine. And I suspect she may be first Jewish senior managers at the magazine. The magazine had a well-earned reputation for anti-Semitism for being very reluctant to hire Jewish people throughout its history, very reluctant to promote those that it did hire in the same way that it did not hire African-American professional staff. So both the Disney Corporation and Susan Goldberg came in not with a ready-made protective allegiance to the magazine, but I think being more open to examining the magazine's history uh, with open eyes and understanding the importance of dealing with it honestly. You know, that for Susan, when she was writing that letter to the editor, a uh, letter from the editor, 
her audience was obviously the readers, you know, her primary audience was the readers, the people who were going to be looking at that issue of the magazine and subsequent issues of the magazine. It was not the board of the National Geographic Society. I'm sure that was a secondary audience, but it wasn't the primary audience. Uh, let me just fill in a quick bit on corporate ownership. In 2015, the National Geographic Society sold effectively 73% of itself to 21st Century Fox. Two years later, at the end of 2017, Disney acquired that 73%. The issue about which we're talking, which includes the editor's note you just mentioned, we'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com, and, and, and the broader issue, which National Geographic called the race issue, was published four months after Disney took control of National Geographic Media. So you're making quite clear that the most important thing in a process such as this is that leadership is on board. The leadership understands that this is not a sweep under the rug effort. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had to be convinced that that my efforts, whatever they would be, would be welcomed and that would be taken seriously and that would be used, let's say properly, <laughs> used in ways that, that would that would please me. But as I said, I, I did go into this very naively and <laughs> didn't ask to be paid. And the other thing that I had to do once I said yes was figure out how do I manage this? You know, I don't have forever to work on this. It's not going to be a book. You know, I can't spend the next two years of my life exploring this history, which certainly would take that long and longer to look at all 132 years to really dive into the photographic archive and the paper archive, which are massive, absolutely massive. So what I thought I'd do was to actually focus on the final product, the magazine, right? So less interested here in the archives and much more interested in what the readers saw. And well, I've still got <laughs> a century of magazines published monthly to look through. And fortunately, the University of Virginia, where I teach, library owns in bound volumes every issue that the magazine has ever published. It's there on the shelves. So I didn't have to look for CDs and I didn't have to see if anybody had ever scanned it. I could look at the real thing. And the wonderful, uh, the wonderful thing about the way that uh, the University of Virginia's volumes have been bound is that every page is bound. You know, if you can remember what National Geographic looks like, uh, National Geographic opens with a bunch of ads, then there's the editorial content, and then it closes with a bunch of ads. Typically, when National Geographic is bound, those ads are removed. For those of us who study things like magazines, we understand that uh, the entire content of the magazine speaks to the reader, and that ads and editorial content can be in juxtaposition, they can be in conversation, they can contradict. They can also tell you who the magazine is relying on for its advertising dollars and who it might not want to offend. So having every issue of the magazine was really terrific and to have the entire magazine. But once again, couldn't possibly look through a century of magazines. <laughs> that's, uh, that's impossible. So what I decided to do was to sample, you know, so every five years, go through a year, every five years, look to see what's there. 
you know, that still was immensely time consuming and gave me a lot to think about. And, you know, there's so many ways in which a magazine like that gets produced. I mean, we, we think about the photographer who may or may not have overwhelmingly his uh, the photographer may have his agenda, which may not align completely with the person writing the text, because usually it was not the photographer writing the text. There are the editors, the picture editors and the text editors. There is the editor-in-chief and the senior editors who set the overall tone. There's the National Geographic Society itself to think about. And they're the readers, you know, one of the things that is very clear about magazines is that magazines do not exercise thought control over their readers. <laughs> readers are awfully independent, and they are perfectly capable of reading something or looking at something and saying that's not quite right. There's a quite a good book about National Geographic that explores letters to the editor of National Geographic by Stephanie Hawkins, and it's called National Iconographic. What she did was she looked at unpublished letters to the editor. National Geographic throughout its history was very careful throughout most of its history of only publishing those favorable letters to the editor. And what she found when she went into the archive was that, oh, Readers often got very angry at what they saw. They disagreed with what they saw. And when contemporary scholars think of the ways that National Geographic has rendered black and brown people as the racial other, has rendered them as primitive and backwards, has rendered them as depicted them as innately inferior, Boy, readers were picking up on this a long time ago. You know, not every reader, of course not. But the, the, the thing is that this magazine, like most other things, was read in a variety of different ways by a variety of different people. And so that was really, really important for me to keep in mind. You know, I could see images in that magazine, which I thought, wow, they are really depicting this particular person who they are saying is representative of a large group or community or race of people, depicting them as the racial inferior to the photographer, to the writer, and to the presumed white reader. Well, it was important to keep in mind, yes, that's true, I think, but on the other hand, I'm not the only person who saw it. And people in 1932 or 1942 or 1952 were perfectly capable of seeing sometimes what was going on. How did you consider how you wanted to communicate your findings to an audience, whether that audience you considered Susan Goldberg or your audience you considered as, as being a broader readership either of the magazine or people who inevitably in early 2018, read news stories about National Geographic's self-examination and its publication of an issue it called the race issue. How did you consider how you wanted to deliver the word, your word, your findings, your thoughts? Well, I knew that I would not speak or write directly to National Geographic's readers. I knew that Susan would be the intermediary of the things that I found and the things that I told to her. So I was always preparing 
for conversations with Susan. And that was fine, as not all, but many historians will tell you that research is a lot more fun than writing, and I find that to be the case. And even though I spent much of my time looking at the printed issues, I did take trips up to Washington, D.C. and go into those magnificent archives that the National Geographic Society has in the basement of its headquarters, and uh, they're delightful. And the archivists and librarians there are friendly and helpful, and they know where everything is, and they can't do enough for you. The staff was tremendous. It was great. And those trips were very, very enjoyable. So all through that process of reading the magazine and, and spending time in the archives and looking at old pictures and old autochromes and old slides and old negatives and old prints, I knew that my final product would be verbal. It would be a conversation. And, you know, frankly, I was fine with that. <laughs> and I keep coming back to the fact that I wasn't being paid. Given that I wasn't being paid, not writing a report was just fine with me. And Susan, I mean, she's terrific. I mean, she's had, you know, an entire lifetime in journalism, and she's risen to the top. She's really smart. And so when you want to have a conversation with somebody about things like this, well, she's one of the people you want to be talking to. As you are reading through the magazine or, or walking through the archives, are you thinking about what impacts you're hoping your examination will have? You know, I'd spoken to Susan and also to Sarah Lean, who was at the time the photo editor at the magazine. And I'd spoken to a few other people in leadership positions. And I knew that they were aware in general terms of the magazine's history. I think there were things that I could tell them that were new. And so it could be that, you know, there's a recurring trope in National Geographic of black and brown people who are rendered as the other, depicted as the other and primitive, often half naked, often wearing what to Western eyes seems like outlandish garb or very little garb and heavily ornamented, that kind of uh, sort of visual trope of primitivism. Well, there is a recurring photograph that appears in National Geographic of people like this being in awe of Western technology. Very often that technology is the camera. So people black and brown people looking at the camera perplexed or surprised or fascinated, but this juxtaposition between the naturally attired white man who's standing next to them and the Western technology and then the primitive person who can't quite figure it out. Sometimes it's a larger piece of technology, like a Jeep or a Land Rover, and sometimes it's a watch. But, wow, you, know, you start picking up on those, those kinds of pictures very early in the magazine's life, and they continue until fairly recently. So smallish things like that they might not have been aware of. But the other thing I could do was to embed the birth of National Geographic and the larger cultural and political history. And, you know, it's a... 
the late 19th century is a time when the United States is asserting itself as an international imperial power, right? We are have almost conquered and dispossessed all of the Native Americans in the continental 48 states. We are building up our fleets to, you know, within 10 years, embark on an imperial war where we take the Philippines and Puerto Rico into our possession and take it away from the Spaniards. You know, we are uh, we're an imperial nation. And the people who founded National Geographic, uh, the National Geographic Society folks, I mean, they are they are part and parcel of this world. They are very elite white men. They have been educated in the Ivies and in the small liberal art schools like Williams and Amherst. They go out of their, the National Geographic Society goes out of its way to invite members of the executive, the president, the vice president, the cabinet secretaries, the leaders of Congress, members of the Supreme Court to participate and to speak at their functions. You know, there's a way in which you can see the society almost thinks of itself as a branch of government. And it matters, of course, that it's headquartered there in Washington, D.C. About five blocks from the White House, in fact. Yeah. So this, it was part and parcel of the imperial enterprise. And the imperial enterprise is what allowed its photographers and its writers and its explorers to go out into the world as if it were their own, right? So, you know, they are riding on the power of the United States to be able to go to all these places. The United States, of course, and British colonialism and French colonialism, etc., which opened the doors to these explorers. I could talk about the way that the second president of the National Geographic Society was Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, we associate Alexander Graham Bell with the invention of the telephone. Uh, he became a very, very wealthy man from having invented the telephone and having created Bell Telephone, the corporation. But he was, among other things, a very enthusiastic eugenicist. And he believed that human beings could be improved by selective breeding. And that very much meant not allowing feeble-minded people and not allowing people who by their race or ethnicity were inferior, well, controlling their, controlling their reproduction, controlling their ability to create families and to give birth. You know, there's a very ugly history in the United States of forced sterilization that eugenics movement propelled. Alexander Graham Bell was part and parcel of that and these are things that there's no reason to, that anybody currently on the staff of National Geographic would have known this, but I could talk to them about that. One of the phrases that really stuck with me about the editor's note that Susan Goldberg wrote in that 2018 issue was that, and I don't remember if it was you or if it was her, boiled down your research, your study to, to this. National Geographic magazine thought it was teaching. What it was really doing was reinforcing negative, colonialist, often racist stereotypes. As you studied the magazine, were you mindful of looking for a sentence or two sentences that would sum up the, the enterprise? Or is it more that 
the more you looked, the more you read, the clearer that became core to the project, core to the magazine's project. I'll answer that in two ways. The first way to answer it is that, no, I wasn't looking for that sentence or that paragraph. I was looking for those pictures. I was looking for the pictures which told the story. I think that National Geographic's power rests primarily in its pictures. And it's not because I think pictures necessarily speak more clearly or necessarily have more impact than prose does. But I think it's the what attracted people to the magazine and what they spent most time with. You know, I think about how I read National Geographic and I very often, you know, look at the pictures, glance at the captions and skip the articles. And oh look, people have written quite a bit about how readers of magazines like National Geographic, or if we go back 50 or 60 years, Life magazine and Look magazine, magazines that were driven by their photographic content and and use their photographic content to attract their subscribers and their readers, people paid most attention to the pictures. You know, and then they read the headlines, and then they read the captions, and then maybe they'd read the article. So yes, I was looking for pictures. I was not looking for text. The other thing to say is that quote that you just read, I'm not sure I agree with it. And I, uh, <laughs> you know, if I said it, then I disagree with myself. National Geographic was always teaching. And so in its othering of people from Africa, Asia, Latin America, uh, Native Americans, African Americans, in its othering, in its representations of them as inherently racial inferiors, that is teaching. Now, you know, I'd say it's false teaching. They are teaching a lie, but that was teaching. And it was lessons that some readers absorbed. You know, there's no way of knowing what percentage of readers absorbed that. And for all readers, what they were being taught was nothing new, was part and parcel of the air that they breathed. It was so deeply embedded in the culture of the United States that it was reinforcing things that they had already learned, things that they thought they already knew. But it is very much teaching. And what the magazine is trying to do now, and I have to say, has been trying to do for, it's been doing it for the last few decades of trying to move past that old National Geographic. You know, even as early as the 1960s when National Geographic published an egregiously bad photo essay on South Africa, on apartheid South Africa, basically ignoring apartheid and saying that in this modern industrial society, blacks have it better here than they have it anywhere else. And they're happy. Look, the magazine published it, but a lot of the staffers were very angry about it. But changing course is so hard when you've got such a deep institutional history, right? And when, of course, not everybody is on board. And when some of the people who are the angriest are people who have the least power within the institution, because um, it certainly wasn't the then editor or the then senior editors who were angry about that pro-apartheid photo essay, 
But as I read through National Geographic, I could see the changes happening, especially by the 1970s. There was actually a quite good photo essay on Harlem. You know, it had its limitations and it was of the time. But, you know, you think, wow, this is mid-70s. This is pretty good. Even before Susan Goldberg took over the magazine, changes were quite noticeable. And now, you know, the magazine is very doing very hard to sort of remediate to change its ways, to tell different kinds of stories. It's not always easy. You know, as much as I like what the magazine is doing, I do have to say that their their staff, photographers, editors, writers, not nearly as racially and ethnically diverse as they should be. They know this. They'll talk about this. They'll admit it. But when you don't have a diverse group of people in the room when decisions are being made, sometimes you make mistakes, you know, and... You know, it's natural. It happens. It's regrettable. But, you know, one of the things that I learned, or I suppose I relearned this, is that large old institutions change their ways haltingly and slowly. You know, it's like trying to transform a university, <laughs> a large university. It's a very, very hard thing to do, and you're going to make mistakes along the way. So in looking back on... on the work you did with National Geographic is that way of thinking, that way of working, that form of aiding an aged institution toward self-examination, is that applicable to other commercial and cultural sectors such as the art museum sector? It's certainly applicable to other sectors, right? So universities have been doing it. There is a large consortium of universities who have been looking at their links to slavery. And sometimes, as we know, in the case of the University of Virginia or Georgetown, the institution itself owned slaves. Sometimes, you know, my school, University of Virginia, was partly built by slaves and could not have been maintained before the Civil War without enslaved labor. So there are a lot of schools who are looking at that, even schools in the North, which relied on the profits of the slave trade for their origins. So schools have been doing this. Uh, the University of Virginia is moving beyond the days of slavery and looking at the university in the age of segregation, as the commission is called. So universities are doing this uh, across the country. As we know, newspapers have done the same thing. I think of the Memphis Commercial Appeal, or the major newspaper in Memphis, Tennessee, has also done a self-examination. So, yeah, it can be certainly applied to other kinds of institutions. You know, but when you think about universities, they've got all kinds of constituencies. But one of their most important constituencies is the public, is the taxpayer, are the citizens of the nation or the state or the city. And if we think about the Memphis newspaper, you know, their major constituency are the people they hope read them and buy them. And they're the citizens of Memphis, many of whom are African-American. So I think when museums do this, I, I, I don't know the answer to the questions about who their major constituencies are when they do a self-examination like this. You know, does the general public care enough about a museum of contemporary art to watch and to pay attention and perhaps read a report or a summary of a report? It's the, you know, it's the 
constituency the members? Is the constituency the employees, the staff, the curatorial staff? Is the audience the board? I don't know. I don't know the answers to all of that. But I'd say that, you know, for museums especially, I think that having buy-in from the board is going to be crucial. Every art museum has a different governance model in history. Many American art museums are on land that is still city-owned. And, for example, the Philadelphia Museum of Art receives free utilities from the city and has for (laughs) as long as I can remember, even though it's an independent nonprofit institution. Or you have the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which receives, what, just a little less than two-thirds of its funding from the county, but which is overwhelmingly run by a board of non-county governmental officials of private private individuals. So, and of course, almost any large city's art museum considers itself a form of a public trust, even if legally it isn't. And so it considers its constituency to be the people in that city and its suburbs and to a certain extent, the tourists that probably too many museums are built around attracting, which is all a long way of saying that one of the answers to your audience question is is yes, all of the above, because art museums think they are important to, and, and often are important to, to all of the above. So yes, in my framing the question as if all art museums were governed the same, I um, led us down a path, but I think your answer is got me out of the mess I made. <laughs> when I started working with National Geographic and with Susan Goldberg, I was convinced that the magazine was committed to the enterprise I was about to embark upon, that they were ready to hear about the ugly side of their history. I think it's also important to ask, well, what next? And National Geographic, what next, has generally been good. They are hiring more photographers of color. They are hiring more photographers from the communities that are being represented. I don't know about internal hiring. You know, so I would want to know, you know, for National Geographic that I haven't been close to, how are you doing hiring more editors of color? How are you doing in terms of promoting editors of color? That sort of thing, you know. But the visible part of National Geographic, yeah. I mean, as I say, we all make mistakes, but the, the there's been a transforma- ongoing transformation. With universities... Oh, my goodness, you know, many have issued these very fine reports on their involvement, for instance, with slavery. I was talking about that earlier. But is there an ongoing commitment now to to creating, if you need to, or sustaining departments and programs for the study of African-American, Latin American, Latinx, Native American studies, Do you have that? Are you hiring faculty of color? Are you retaining your faculty of color? Are you promoting your faculty of color? And in senior positions, are you moving people into positions of power where they are decision makers and where they shape the university? And here, universities have been much, much slower, much, much slower to change. And for museums... You know, I would be delighted if 
museums were to embark on the kind of reckoning that National Geographic did. But my question would then be, okay, what changes after? What changes after you have your report? John Edwin Mason, thank you. My pleasure, Tyler. It's good to talk to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.